Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Gary White, author of Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, who will be signing his book at the Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival in Titusville. There were no laws at that time to protect these wading birds in the Everglades, so one of their highest priorities was to push the legislature to enact laws that would protect birds. We'll discuss the 1888 yellow fever outbreak in Jacksonville. The city of Jacksonville, which at the time was one of the largest cities in Florida, Florida was gripped in, in one of the worst epidemics that the state has ever seen. And the Maitland Art Center is now an historic landmark. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Marvin Gaye originally recorded the song Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology in 1971 for the album What's Going On. Unfortunately, when Eddie Vedder and The Strokes covered the song 35 years later, the environmental problems described in the lyrics still existed, and many of them are much worse today. Gary White is author of the new book Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. White is an award-winning reporter for the Lakeland Ledger. He's worked for several other Florida newspapers, and his writing has also appeared in magazines, including the Oxford American and Florida Travel and Life. A lifelong Floridian, Gary White enjoys spending time in the natural Florida, cycling, hiking, kayaking, and taking photographs. His love of Florida's natural environment inspired him to write Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes. I have lived all my life in Florida. I grew up in Brevard County, and... I guess it wasn't until I was pretty well into adulthood that I started to really think about the environment, but I've seen so much loss of the natural history, natural heritage, natural wonders of Florida, and I knew there were other books on the natural history of Florida or the environmental history, but I didn't think anyone had done quite this approach of focusing exclusively on the conservation efforts and the people who are involved with them. Today, the words conservation and environmentalism are used interchangeably, but over the past century, views of what effective conservation of the environment entails have evolved. Yes, as I say in the book, the conservation movement in Florida 
began with a pretty specific aim. It was a group of people who were alarmed about the fact that birds, wading birds, were being slaughtered in the Everglades for their feathers, which were sold to hat makers in the north. And so there was that pretty narrow interest uh, that sparked that. And then since then, it's broadened to include so many other areas, uh, concern about invasive species, um, just protection of the land itself, not only the wildlife, the birds and other wildlife, but the land itself that they depend on for habitat. There's so much more understanding now of how uh, <clears throat> certain species have to have a certain kind of habitat. So uh, it's just broadened greatly over the last century or so. There are some great books focusing on particular aspects of the conservation movement in Florida, including Jack Davis's exhaustive study of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's work called An Everglades Providence, Stuart MacGyver's Death in the Everglades, the story of Guy Bradley, the first environmental martyr, and Paving Paradise by Craig Pittman and Matthew Waite. Gary White's book, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, is the first survey of the environmental movement in Florida from its earliest beginnings to the present day. We can say that the conservation movement, organized conservation movement in Florida, began March 3rd, 1900. That was the day that 15 people met at a house in Maitland and decided they were going to create what was then the Florida Audubon Society. And... Uh, Again, their purpose was largely just to bring attention to the slaughter of birds because there were no laws at that time to protect these wading birds in the Everglades. So their one of their highest priorities was to push the legislature to, to uh, enact laws that would protect birds. It was the home of Lewis and Clara Domerich where the Florida Audubon Society was founded. In his book, Gary White writes that one member of that group was particularly persuasive while influencing women to stop wearing feathers and sometimes entire bird carcasses on their hats. Mary Monroe, she was the, the wife of a renowned nature writer, Kirk Monroe, and uh, according to an early history of Florida Audubon Society, she was known to uh, accost women she met strangers on the street who were wearing hats adorned with bird feathers, which was extremely common at that time, and to lecture them on the cruelty that led to those feathers being on their hats. And uh, according to the early biographer, some of the women were so moved by what she said that they took off the hats and pulled off the feathers and changed their ways right there. From the work of naturalist William Bartram and ornithologist John James Audubon in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, to the most contemporary discussions of climate change and water use, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, chronicles in detail the pivotal moments in our state's environmental movement as it developed. After the early, uh, the original priority of uh, enacting laws to protect birds, I'd say the next major stage was probably turning attention toward the preservation of the Everglades in South Florida. There have been schemes for decades to drain the Everglades. Networks of canals were dug to try to dry it up so that it could be used in a more valuable way. And uh, so that process started probably in the 1920s and lasted about 20 years before finally in 1947 
Everglades National Park was dedicated. Another milestone in the conservation movement was the successful effort to halt construction of the Cross Florida Barge Canal in January 1971. Gary White. As with the draining of the Everglades, uh, there had been hopes of creating a, a canal to bisect the peninsula of Florida going back into the 1800s. And those there were starts and stops along the way for years, and the project languished. Then uh, in the 1960s, uh, it, it gained steam again and got pretty well along before environmental groups, especially the Alachua Audubon Society, started to look, take a closer look at the details and realized that this was going to have a drastic effect on the two rivers involved, the St. John's River and the Oklawaha River. And from originally just a handful of people in the Alachua Audubon Society, it grew to a statewide effort to oppose that construction, and it was eventually halted after about a third had been uh, constructed. Building on the successes of the Florida Audubon Society, efforts at Everglades protection, and the halting of the Cross Florida Barge Canal, the environmental movement in Florida continued to grow in the late 20th century. Uh, I would say yes, in general, in the 1960s, that was a real awake, a time of awakening, not just in Florida, but across the country on environmental issues. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was extremely important in making average people realize that what we were the approach that society was taking was having seriously harmful effects on nature and animals so i would say this the 1960s definitely saw a uh, resurgence in the conservation movement and the late 1960s early 1970s saw the passage of a lot of the really important laws on uh, environmental protection in Florida and in the United States as a well. whole. After chronicling the history of conservation in Florida, a large section of Gary White's book looks at heroes of the movement. Some of the people that White identifies as environmental heroes are expected, such as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Nathaniel Reed, while others are less well-known heroes of the movement. Two of the people who probably wouldn't be very well known outside of uh, the conservation movement itself, uh, just to pick two out of many I could, uh, uh, one would be Johnny Jones. He was a, a plumber from West Palm Beach who originally became a, a lobbyist in Tallahassee on behalf of a plumbing association, later started lobbying on behalf of a uh, wildlife group that was originally just a hunter's organization but broadened its scope. And during the late 1960s, early 1970s, he was instrumental in the passage of some of the really important conservation laws of that period. Another one I would mention is a man named Bill Partington from Winter Park. He is not well-known statewide, but he, again, was crucial during that same period, the late 60s and 70s, in just helping to establish a more scientifically grounded approach toward lobbying and uh, pursuing conservation goals. 
Another environmental hero identified by White is a familiar name, but he's not always identified with the conservation movement. He's the man known for his satirical novels, including Tourist Season, Striptease, and Skinny Dip. I would suggest that Carl Heisen should be considered a hero of the conservation movement. Um, he's not a traditional conservationist. He's not active in political areas or lobbying for laws, but uh, all of his novels that he's written since the mid-1980s have involved bringing attention to the degradation of, of the environment, the loss of the natural heritage of Florida, especially South Florida. And so by reaching such a massive audience, he, I would think, has made some people think about what's happening in Florida who might otherwise not have given it much thought. As the 21st century continues, environmental issues will be among the most important for Floridians to deal with. Gary White says that environmentalists in Florida today can benefit from learning about the history of the conservation movement. Well, one thing they can learn, I think, is that uh, what might at first seem like a hopeless or, or extremely difficult battle can be won. One example of that would be the, the opposition to the cross-Florida barge canal. It was a project that state leaders wanted, national leaders, business, powerful business people, and starting with just a handful of people in the Gainesville area, eventually opposition became strong enough and uh, gained enough attention that that was stopped. Um, and the same thing, I guess, with the very beginning of the movement, the um, alarm about the killing of waiting birds for their feathers for hats that might have seemed at the time like almost a an impossible quest to try to stop that uh there were no laws to protect the birds florida was lightly populated these hunters were out there out of view of everyone doing whatever they wanted but starting with just 15 people meeting in a house in maitland they established the basis for raising awareness, pressuring the government to do something, and eventually the legislature passed laws, and before too long, that sort of unchecked slaughter of waiting birds disappeared. In his book, Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, Gary White covers the entire history of the environmental movement, but he also reflects upon its present and future. Victories often are not permanent when it comes to the environment. Conservationists have to fight year after year in trying to persuade the state legislature not to do something that will have harmful effects or to do something that will have beneficial effects. One of the big challenges for the future for environmental organizations is attracting younger people to the cause. So many of the people from kind of the golden era of the 1970s, 60s and 70s either have died or are aging. And when you go to meetings of local Audubon or Sierra Club groups across Florida, what you'll see a lot of the time is just some retirees. And so those groups need to try to come up with strategies for attracting younger people to get them excited about the cause. 
Gary White is author of the book Conservation in Florida, Its History and Heroes, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. We impact the lives of Floridians today through a variety of innovative educational outreach projects, including this program. To support our efforts, please become a member of the Florida Historical Society today. Information is on our website at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the flu is going around this time of year, but it's nothing like what Jacksonville experienced in 1888. Yeah, that's right. Back in the uh, late summer and early fall of 1888, the city of Jacksonville, which at the time was one of the largest cities in Florida, was gripped in, in one of the worst epidemics that the state has ever seen of yellow fever. And yellow fever is a viral infection that we now know is caused by the uh, in a, a bite from an infected mosquito. And it's carried uh, once a mosquito bites an infected person uh, and is then passed through the mosquito's saliva to another person and it spreads throughout uh, a small community that way. But in the late 19th century, uh, people didn't fully understand this disease, what the causes were, uh, and really had no idea that the mosquito was to blame. And they assumed that it was uh, a communicable disease that was caused by uh, people who were infected being uh, in close uh, quarters with someone else. Um, so it, it, it often caused a, a massive panic uh, throughout some of these uh, more metropolitan areas, which, like I said, Jacksonville being one of the largest in the state. Uh, and it, it really caused a um, uh, another problem in itself, because uh, we have to imagine that at that time, uh, people were completely in the dark about what the disease was, and it, it actually was so uh, virulent, meaning it was so uh, powerful that it could uh, possibly kill someone within a matter of days. They would uh, start um, seeing symptoms, headache, fever, uh, nausea, you know, aches and pains, things like that, that we might associate with influenza. Uh, but then soon the liver would be become infected uh, and the, uh, the patient or the, the victim would start turning yellow, hence the name yellow fever. And shortly after that, it, it often meant that uh, the, uh, the person would die. Hmm. Well, you have a scrapbook here chronicling the, uh, the outbreak of this disease in 1888. Yes, that's right. And here at the Library of Florida History, we have a lot of scrapbooks. Often it's of vacation photos and more uh, jovial subjects. This is a bit more morbid. Uh, the scrapbook we're looking at actually only covers one month from uh, August, the beginning of August, when the first case was reported in Jacksonville to the end of the month. Uh, and, and we're not entirely sure who put the scrapbook together. Uh, we don't know if they were 
possibly infected with the disease and passed away or, or may have fled the city, but it only covers to the end of August. And what the, uh, the compiler of the scrapbook did was clip out articles from the Florida Times Union, which was a state paper but was centered in Jacksonville. And they listed all the uh, uh, cases of, of new yellow fever cases that were coming up, uh, deaths that were reported, but also some uh, bizarre tactics to combat the disease. And here is an article about uh, burning uh, pine and, and tar outside of one's home or, or office building to effectively destroy the microbes that were causing this disease. And in fact, in this article, the author is uh, uh, talking about these giant pitch tar uh, burn piles right outside of the offices of the of the newspaper office. So here you can imagine this, this gentleman trying to write an article as this black tar is billowing through the building, thinking that they're safe and then everything is, is, uh, is okay. And there are a number of instances of violence where uh, armed guards were, were called in to either keep people into inside of quarantined areas or to keep people from leaving the city uh, and, and coming into the city because, again, they thought it was passed from person to person. Uh, and a lot of other neighboring communities were so afraid that they were uh, threatening to, to pull up railroad ties uh, if, if the city d decided to uh, uh, force any people uh, out of the city and, and to become refugees in other areas. So it really did cause a widespread panic. And, and um, eventually, and as we go through, that we'll see the uh, progression of, of um uh, these, these state agencies really coming together and forming what would ultimately culminate into the State Board of Health uh, that was formed in the early 1890s. Hmm. Well, it's probably not much consolation for people suffering from the flu today, but at least it's not yellow fever. That's right. Thanks, Ben. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The distinctive Maitland Art Center is now designated as an historic landmark. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. In Florida, Andre preferred that style, I believe, because he saw Florida as a new place for him to experiment with his architecture. That was Christine Madrid French telling me about Andre Smith, the artist and founder of the art colony, which became the Maitland Art Center. In September of 2014, the Maitland Art Center became the first national historic landmark in Orange County and only the 44th in the entire state of Florida. Christine Madrid French researched and prepared the report for the National Park Service. What really impressed the National Park Service was the example of Art Deco and Mayan revival art and architecture on display throughout the buildings and grounds of the Art Center. Andre Smith came to Maitland in the late 1930s and started the art colony. Christine Madrid French tells me about what local events sparked the interest of Smith 
to create such an unusual synthesis of forms found here in Maitland. Part of it was he was actually reacting against a winter park. Uh, there was an art exhibit there sponsored by Samuel Cress, which was all Italian Renaissance. And Andre was angry because it wasn't celebrating American modernist. And he came to Maitland and then started this um, center with uh, funding from Mary Louise Curtis Bach. And both of them wanted to explore modern art and architecture versus what they saw as the conservative movement in those two areas. Smith was also reacting to world events and trends popular throughout the United States. It would be, you know, Mayan, Aztec revival, basically. It's similar to the Egyptian revival that was keyed in when Howard Carter discovered King Tut's tomb. Everybody said, we're going to do Egyptian now. This was uh, based, there were many, um, there were some Mayan temples uncovered in Mexico during that period. They were popularized at the World's Fair, and then you start seeing the imagery appear in architecture across the United States. The Art Center was designed and built during the New Deal, and throughout the first decades of the 20th century, buildings were designed based on colonial or classical Western design. But Smith did not want to create anything typical, or even use popular forms of architecture at that time also a reaction against colonial revival, which was based on Greek and Roman precedents with the columns and all of that. This was a way that architects were trying to create their own uh, truly American architectural form. The, um, at the research studio designed by Andre Smith would be called Mayan Revival during the Art Deco period which is very specific. But Mayan Revival draws upon a whole interest in the early 20th century mostly the 1930s, of um, a fascination with North, North American architecture that they saw as native North American architecture. So that would be drawing from the Latin American precedent. And there was a movement during this period. It was also promoted by the World's Fairs during that time. There really are two styles on display at the Art Center. One is the Art Deco, which was a popular form in Florida during the 1930s, and the Mayan or Aztec revival, which was done through sculptures and accents throughout the buildings and grounds of the art center. Christine Madrid French tells us about the mixing of these two forms. The Art Deco would be the style of the buildings underneath the sculpture. So the Mayan revival is the sculpture applied to it. The Art Deco is that streamlined vision of the architecture. It's very simple underneath. I think he was really trying to reach back. What's interesting is that the sculpture is placed on a building that's actually very simple and very modern. It's white concrete um, block with very you know, straight lines. And then on top of that is this very elaborately carved concrete sculpture. Christine Madrid French reminded me that the influences Smith drew from were not strictly Mayan or Aztec. He was trying to highlight non-European or non-Western forms throughout the grounds. What Andre did actually was incorporate Mayan, Aztec, Asian. There are some figures um, that are reminiscent of African figures as well. He drew from all nations. The predominant is Mayan. So you'll see um, sort of a Native American look to the architecture with figures, snakes, um, diamonds, and flowers around the figures, very tightly packed sculptural narrative. Throughout the United States, there are only 2,500 sites which are considered National Historic Landmarks. The Maitland Art Center is the only one in Seminole, Lake, Orange, or Osceola counties. 
That was Christine Madrid French, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and get our daily Facebook posts by liking us at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.